Hello everyone, this is Patrick Kiesling, one of the medical students on the team behind ENT in a Nutshell. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so that you never miss an episode. Now, on to the episode. Hi, welcome to ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Ashlyn Asiri, and today we are here with Dr. Nuweed Chowdhury to discuss the basics of artificial intelligence in otolaryngology. Dr. Chowdhury, thank you so much for being here. Hi, um, nice to be here and really excited to chat a little bit about this topic. So before we begin, I'd like to introduce our guest speaker. Dr. Chowdhury is a rhinologist who has a keen interest in data analysis and statistical research. His current research focuses on predictive analytics and applications of artificial intelligence, or AI, within otolaryngology. Today we're discussing a topic that doesn't really follow our usual recipe for patient workup and treatment, but has wide implications in the future of medicine and data analytics. We will go over the technology known as artificial intelligence, its medical and surgical applications, limitations of the technology, and future implications for practice. So let's jump right in. Dr. Chowdhury, let's start at the beginning. What technology does the term artificial intelligence specifically refer to? So it's a pretty broad kind of basket of um, different algorithms and techniques, but in general, it's technology that allows computer systems to perform really narrow tasks at this point, and, and hopefully at some point very broad tasks, but these tasks are typically things that require normal human intelligence. So um, for example, um, looking at a picture and identifying what it is. Is it a cat? Is it a dog? Is it a tumor? And whatnot. Um, Also looking at things like object and word recognition and sort of decision-making rules, um, interpreting language, and um, kind of one of the more fun ones is competitive gaming. So you may have seen IBM's AI beat Ken Watson during uh, Jeopardy and and playing chess and beating uh, grandmasters at chess and and that kind of thing. So it's really exciting. And what's um, really caused this to take off more recently is that We've got immense amounts of data, and we can store it really cheaply, and we can actually process it faster than we've ever been able to do so. And so um, those things have really led to, I'd say, maybe in the last decade, a real explosion of um, these algorithms and finding applications for them in different realms. So how would you say that AI is different than data mining or statistical methods that look at large databases to develop predictive models? You know, I think it all is essentially on a spectrum, um, and and there's kind of a lot of overlap and a lot of really gray areas. Um, Some machine learning models are essentially common statistical methods like logistic regression. Others are much more complicated, um, things like a convolutional neural network or an artificial neural network. And so I think depending on who you ask, you'll get a different answer to that question. So um, I think a statistician would have a much different answer than someone who's in the computer science realm um, as to what exactly machine learning and artificial intelligence is. But, you know, my, my, my personal sort of take on this is that these are generally methods that use flexible modeling tools um, that 
use iterative approaches to identify patterns in data. Um, essentially, you are giving the computer a set of data and then kind of the answers or what you want it to learn from the data and then kind of telling it, hey, figure out the rules to this. Come up with a model that sort of fits this data to the answers. And then frequently you kind of then are just looking to apply this to a new set of data and see, well, how well did this machine actually learn the rules? And uh, oftentimes there's a, a random component to this, which I think is a little bit different than um, things like a linear regression model where all the terms are sort of fixed with different coefficients and they're all added together. Um, the, the models can get much more complex with artificial intelligence. And the trade-off really is that you can have a model that is not easily explained. So it's kind of this black box. It kind of spits out an answer and it might be right, but you don't actually know how it got that answer. We have to be a little bit careful with that um, compared to something like a regression model where you can say, okay, you just take the age and add this coefficient and you know that's the answer. So we already started to discuss this a little bit, but what does AI offer that we currently can't do with statistics and large data sets? What AI is able to do um, is essentially identify complex patterns in data that humans may not necessarily recognize because of uh, either the sheer amount of data or the amount of collinearity between data. Um, and, and so as a result, it's, it's, I think, really great for exploratory analyses and generating hypotheses on large data, in particular sort of looking at nonlinear relationships. And kind of the example that I'll give is think of, say, um, some data that's described by like y equals x squared. And so it's like a parabola, basically. And you try to model that with a linear model, i.e. a line. You're not really going to find that relationship. You're actually you know, likely to find a, a zero relationship or a null relationship when really the variable is completely described by the, the input. While you can model a linear regression with an x squared term, it's really unusual to do that. I don't think I've seen many examples of that in ENT. And, and so we're often missing these nonlinear interaction terms when we sort of just fit standard models. And so some of what uh, machine learning methods can do is kind of pick up on that without explicitly being told, hey, I think that there's this relationship going on. And so it, it really helps say, hey, you know, maybe there's this nonlinear term, and then we can specifically design an experiment to look at that um, in the future. Another good use for AI is to, um, you know, look at really informationally and computationally intense tasks, specifically things like parsing out tumor volumes on a CT scan or reading pathology slides, you know, things where the data is not on a spreadsheet um, or quantified in a, in a number. And, and so we can automate this process potentially. And, you know, instead of using tumor staging, we could just feed the pathology images and um, the CT scan into the computer and it could automatically say, hey, there's X probability that um, this is going to be a malignancy versus um, a benign tumor and this is what the likely outcome is. So instead of compressing data, we're, we're kind of using the full breadth of uh, what's available for us. Outside of medicine, what are uh, some examples of AI technology being used today? So um, I think one of the fascinating things is sort of how intertwined AI is already in our daily lives and how often we use it without even knowing. So something as simple as your spam filter on your email is a complex AI algorithm that has studied 
millions, if not billions of emails that have been labeled as spam and and kind of predicts and filters out new emails that might be um, spam, sometimes accurately and sometimes not. Um, Also, when you're watching Netflix and it shows you these are the new you know movies based on your history that we think you might like or when amazon tells you to buy more stuff and you're like okay uh, this is actually stuff that i would buy and it's kind of scary how um it can predict that um all of that is um using some type of machine learning algorithm um and it's been feasible because these companies have so much data on you you know more than we even know and so they're all using that to try to figure out how to sell us more stuff and get us to watch more stuff So now that we've talked a little bit about what AI is, I think it's always important to take a look back on development and the history of topics. So can you tell us a little bit about how AI was initially developed? Another one of the fascinating things about AI, I think, is that the key concepts of it were really developed back in the 1950s. One of the first conceptual understandings of AI was by Alan Turing, and he came up with this idea of the Turing test, which he called the imitation game, and that's kind of why the movie is named the imitation game um, about his life. Um, And essentially, he posed this question, you know, how would you know that a machine had, um, was thinking, or a machine would have human-level intelligence? And he said that it would be when you could talk to this machine and it would have this discussion with this machine would be indistinguishable from a human. Um, And so that's always kind of been the standard, and it's been evolved a little bit since then. But that sort of planted the seed of uh, artificial intelligence and and consciousness. And, And so afterwards, in the 1950s, a computer scientist named Marvin Minsky developed the first neural network. So, you know, I think we sort of think about, oh, this neural network is this cool new hot topic, and it was actually done in the 1950s um, using a bunch of vacuum tubes, and um, they created a 40-neuron artificial neural network at that time. And then soon afterwards, another scientist, Arthur Samuel, developed a program that could play checkers. And uh, Arthur Samuel is actually credited with coming up with the term machine learning as well. What's interesting is in the history of AI, there have been these booms and busts. And actually, right after that period, there was a a kind of a bust, and it's called the AI winter. And essentially, people really got disheartened, and they kind of said, you know, we have all these cool ideas, but there wasn't enough funding to really maintain things. And, And more importantly, these algorithms were so computationally complex, they could say, you know, if you could have a machine that could do X, Y, and Z, you could have artificial intelligence, but there was no machine at that time that could actually do any of that. And, and so people really got frustrated and, and, and um, a lot of people went into other fields. But then kind of in the late 1980s, you started to see um, the pace of computing takeoff. And a computer scientist named Jeffrey Hinton came up with this article on backpropagation which is uh, essentially how a neural network could learn from data and the process by which a neural network could learn from data. And even today, most of the neural networks are using some variation of backpropagation to to learn. And after that, there was essentially an explosion of AI research again. You had IBM's Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov in chess in the, in the mid-90s. And then really in the next decade, CPU and GPU hardware just begins to just get faster and faster and faster. There's been almost a democratization of this technology where today you could buy a computer that essentially would be have considered a supercomputer back in um, the 90s. And so people have um, really started to use these tools to apply them to their own problems, which I think is uh, really exciting. And that's kind of the era that we're in now. 
That's really interesting. Before we get into the medical applications of this technology, can you explain how AI technology actually works? There's a couple of different specific algorithms that are as generally considered AI, but from a high-level view, essentially these algorithms are, rather than explicitly given rules to figure out how to interpret data, they're expected to learn the rules from the answers. And so, you know, one analogy would be, you know, instead of giving a medical student a textbook of pathology and say, you know, okay, you want you to read this and study this, um, you essentially would give them a bunch of images of like squamous cell pathology slides and just say, I want you to learn sort of what makes a squamous cell carcinoma look different from uh, normal tissue. And, and that's it. You just kind of give them the images and the answers and say, you know, good luck. And and so that's what AI does that's different from, I guess, traditional programming. And then the next phase of that is then to sort of check understanding. And so you would, you know, ask this AI or medical student sort of to classify new images and, and see kind of where they or how accurately they predict them and, and um, how well they um, have learned, I guess, from the data. So we've used the term neural network a few times already. Can you explain what that means exactly? So a neural network is um, loosely based on the concept of a, a neural network in biology and how biological nervous systems operate. And uh, essentially, you can think of a neuron biologically as something that takes in electrical signal, does some sort of processing to it, and then outputs it to other neurons. And so um, there's a similar sort of um, electronic neuron, if you will, within a neural network. And and often there's several, if not millions of them, in in really some of the bigger neural networks. Uh, Essentially, they're taking in an input doing some kind of processing and sending it to another node or another neuron that is then taking in that input, doing processing and sending it onwards. And it it, it seems somewhat basic, but there are actually some mathematical proofs that say, you know, using an appropriately sized neural network, you can model any function in the world. And so that's kind of where the power of the neural network really is. Um, And and so there's um, some terms such as, you know, nodes, which are basically just different, I guess the analogy would be like cell bodies, basically. Um, There's often this term called a hidden layer, which um, essentially you have your input uh, and then you have a bunch of processing that happens in these nodes. And sometimes there's just one set of nodes that's doing that processing. So there's one hidden layer. Sometimes for things like convolutional neural networks, there's several hidden layers where processing is happening. And you can kind of think of each layer as being a more and more abstract sort of level of processing. So you could you know, say the analogy in a in a in a person would be first the cochlea is detecting frequencies, and then um, you're sending these frequencies into the brain, and then the brain is actually sort of taking these frequencies and 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 turning them into perceptions of sound, and then those sounds are words, and there's another level of abstraction about that that's sort of changing and interpreting sounds into words and then you know maybe words into emotions so there's all of these different abstractions and different areas of the neural network are doing different processing calculations similar to how different areas of your brain are doing different processing of the same input signal 
The other thought is this concept of the deep neural network. And uh, that's also kind of a, a loosely defined term. There's not like a point at which a neural network, I guess, becomes deep. It's just known as a, a neural network that has you know, a multitude of hidden layers where there's a lot of processing that's going on underneath the uh, the hood. But um, the main thing for a deep neural network is that they're often very difficult to interpret. And, and so a really simple neural network, you can actually look at the different weights and you can kind of say, okay, this is how this is working. And it's more like an equation but for a deep neural network, there's just so much overlap and so much complexity that uh, it's often a bit of a black box. Thank you. I think that was a great overview of a very complicated uh, technology. I appreciate the hearing reference. Outside of neural networks, we hear a lot of buzzwords around AI. Can you go into the different subfields of AI and what each involves? Yeah, there's um, a lot of different areas that are being investigated in terms of AI. And um, each one is probably looking at different input signals, I I suppose, would be one way to look at it, or or different data. So there's natural language processing, which I use every day. You know, I'm using Dragon, and I'm dictating into it, and and it's spitting out my words usually pretty well. And that's essentially what that's trying to do is to process language and interpret language eventually. So, So maybe it doesn't have this capability now, but perhaps I could say, you know, order augmented, and it just knows that that's what I'm meaning, and it does it automatically. And and so that's kind of where that technology is going. There's the concept of machine learning, which I think is broadly just uh, any algorithm that learns from data. And so I think even an algorithm as simple as the mean of a, a variable is a form of machine learning if you do it on a computer. But obviously, it's generally used to refer to um, more complicated algorithms that are often um, nonlinear and, and sometimes random. And so within that, there's a couple of different subdivisions. You could think of uh, supervised learning, which is kind of what we've been talking about mostly here today. And I think that's probably one of the more common uses of machine learning. And what that means is when you're supervising learning, you're giving the algorithm the answers and expecting it to learn rules and relationships. So you would essentially give it a set of data, what you're looking for, and say, hey, figure this out. In contrast to that, there's the concept of unsupervised learning, where you are giving the algorithm just a set of data and saying, you know, I'm not actually sure what the relationships are, and and I'm trying to see if you can figure out like how many maybe different groups or different subdivisions there might be in this data. And so one of the real common uses for this, especially in sort of the research that we do, is is clustering. So there's an interest in the study of chronic sinusitis of trying to determine what different uh, inflammatory endotypes would be. And, and so cluster algorithms are essentially using biomarkers and trying to say, hey, you know, when we look at this from a statistical perspective, it seems like there's maybe, you know, seven groups or 10 groups of inflammatory biomarkers that seem to correlate with each other. You know, the downside to unsupervised learnings, because we're asking a computer to do learning without knowing the answer, there's a lot of variability. And that's why in endotyping, there's about four or five different papers that have looked at this and they all have different answers and it's all about your inputs and where you draw the line for your outputs but it's still kind of an active area of research talked a little bit about deep learning which is typically using very 
large neural networks to perform this learning process. There's a couple of interesting new things that have come out just in the past year. I think the most fascinating but also very scary is this idea of a GAN or a generative adversarial network. And essentially, they are two neural networks that are training each other. This kind of sounds like Skynet, <laughs> but um, it's actually pretty impressive. The um, neural networks are, are actually trying to fool each other. And so there's some evidence that um, shows that this method of training a network is, is faster and more efficient and can um, do really well with certain problems, particularly um, generating images. And so you, you may sort of come across some people who have posted synthetic images of faces that look very real, and uh, those are usually done with GANs. The, you know, the holy grail of all of this and what people are really working towards is this concept of artificial general intelligence. Um, and so this would be something really akin to human intelligence, um, and it would be something that would be adaptable beyond just a really narrow task. So something that could essentially have true human level intelligence. This is associated with a concept called the singularity, and, and this is the idea that uh, at some point we could develop a general intelligence that could be so smart that it could actually create smarter and smarter versions of itself and eventually surpass um, human intelligence by several orders of magnitude. And, and obviously, you know, we've probably seen the implications of that in lots of sci-fi movies, but it is something that I think is increasingly possible and maybe even likely. There's different theories on that, but let's just hope that we don't have Skynet and have to have the Arnold save us at some point. But <laughs> That's just absolutely fascinating. Um, so let's say if we had access to machine learning technology and we had a data set that we wanted to analyze and develop predictions to a specific question. More broadly, what are the steps that would go into um, doing something like this? The fundamental, I think, thing about a lot of machine learning is it's all about the data. And I think sometimes people lose sight of that. And, and it's all about really getting high quality data up front, which is the same problem that we have with standard research problems. So let's say we had this database of images of different, say, um, laryngeal tumors, and we want to sort of identify which ones are just benign nodules and which ones are, are squamous cell carcinomas. So ideally, you would have a database of images. And with machine learning, uh, more is better. Um, some of the top machine learning um, and um, deep learning networks that have been published by Google and Facebook all use millions um, of images for them. So, so it would be something on that order of magnitude that you would want, especially for something like this. You would essentially separate this into a couple of sets. So one, you'd have a training data set where it would be a, a bunch of images. And typically, it's anywhere from 70 to 80 percent of the images that you would use to teach the algorithm how to differentiate between cancers and non-cancers. And you would ideally also want um, a fairly even distribution of both within your data set so it could learn the features of, of both of those. And then you would have another set of data that um, you just kind of keep in your back pocket. And it's something that you would only really use at the very end to test the performance of your model and test the predictive accuracy of your model. And so you can kind of then sort of label these images afterwards um, and then feed the images into your algorithm of choice. And there's um, 
you know, probably a whole different lecture that we could do <laughs> on that topic. But more commonly for this um, sort of thing, we would probably use um, a deep neural network. It seems to have the best performance, but you could use um, any of a number of them. You know, essentially at the very beginning, your network doesn't know anything. And so you initialize the network with just your best guess, you know, just almost random values. And then it would run the model once and it would say, hey, I, you know, missed 90% of these images. And then what it'll do is create an error function that um, determines, okay, this is what how I could adjust the weights of my algorithm to um, improve prediction on the next iteration. And then it runs the whole algorithm again, and then hopefully your error is better. And then again, it's this iterative process where it keeps adjusting sort of how much weight it's giving to say different pixels or different aspects of the image in a circular fashion um, until it sort of converges on a final-ish um, algorithm. And then you would have this trained algorithm and then you would test it on your data set and hopefully it works really well. And then you you know, publish it and, and uh, you um, get to do AI podcasts on... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> So it sounds like a lot of the success of the model obviously depends on what kind of data you put into the algorithm and how it's developed. What are some of the other limitations of artificial intelligence? So for most AI algorithms to be effective, you really need a lot of data. And this is almost an order of magnitude, I think, beyond of what we typically would consider um, big, um, even you know, something like a thousand patients worth is, is pretty small by machine learning standards. You know, when Amazon and Netflix are training their algorithms, are you literally using millions of inputs from millions of people? AI really works well for that. But you have to be careful because you have to see how the data is being generated and, and what are the biases of the data itself just because the data is being generated in a particular fashion and uh, maybe it's not being collected by someone. It doesn't mean that it's unbiased. And one of the recent examples that came out of this was this healthcare prediction algorithm that um, was uh, run by a big insurance company and they basically wanted to automate the process of, you know, who should get what tests and care and, and, and they used their quote unquote unbiased data to uh, build this algorithm. And what they actually found is that there were, the algorithm was systematically recommending less care for, uh, for African Americans, for example, even though, you know, the only real difference was their race. And, you know, these people were just as sick or had the same comorbidities as, as other populations. And it's because of the biases in our healthcare system that, cause people or that generally deliver less care to African Americans, um, you know, that underlying bias was just reflected in the algorithm. Fortunately, it was caught before it was deployed on a widespread level, but it just shows you that it doesn't undo any of the biases of the data that's being fed into the algorithm. We have to be almost, I think, more careful with these kinds of algorithms because, you know, if say you fit a regression model, you could maybe very easily look at the different parameters and you could say, hey, you know, our beta for African Americans was, was really weird compared to everything else. Something like a neural network, you don't have that number. You don't have a statistical way to, to quantify that. And so you could just blindly deploy it and say, hey, you know, it, it does a great job 90% of the time, but for those 10% of the people that it's not doing a great job from it, it may not be a, a random 10%. It may be systematically biased. 
Well, that kind of leads right into our next question is that certainly this technology has the capacity to do great things, but it also can have some negative outcomes. And I think the example you listed is a tremendous example of something that we don't want to happen in the future. We do hear some of these negative opinions about AI and the potential dangers down the road. You know, aside from including some of the biases that are inherent in society today, what are some of the other concerns or how do we address these concerns? So there's um, obviously concern about computers working autonomously without human inputs or controls, uh, especially if we do develop a algorithm that has general intelligence or something that's not tailored to a specific task. Uh, As we discussed in the last question, because of these biases, we need to actually be even more uh, careful about what we tell computers and what we use them for and to be critical of the conclusions that they're drawing. Sometimes there's a really seductive quality about uh, artificial intelligence, uh, the promise of offloading some task that is not considered to be very interesting or some dull rote thing that we can just have the AI algorithm do. But if we are making decisions on those outputs without being critical about them, we may be doing people um, a disservice, especially in healthcare, for example. We should definitely keep having humans be critical and service checkpoints for the conclusions of um, artificial intelligence. There's also this concept of the black box. Um, That's a danger of artificial intelligence where uh, oftentimes we don't necessarily know why the algorithm is making the decisions uh, that it is. And, And we kind of saw that in the last question. But even more so, there's issues with interpretability. And you could imagine somebody publishing an algorithm and it says, okay, well, based on our data, you know, there's no difference between people with polyps and uh, not polyps. And there may be some underlying bias within that data set that caused them to lead to those conclusions. And finally, I think um, from a political standpoint, there's a lot of economic considerations that are present. And I think you're hearing that around the ideas of universal basic income and what happens when robots and artificial intelligence takes jobs that are usually done by humans. And I think we're still a ways out from that. But you could certainly imagine if artificial intelligence algorithms become very potent, um, even jobs in healthcare, perhaps radiology jobs or or pathology jobs may be at risk, um, especially if you have an algorithm that can automatically process a lot of this data um, on its own with rising healthcare costs. You could easily see an insurance company kind of saying, well, you know, we're only going to get a pathologist to read this if, you know, there's something really weird or if it's some really rare tumor and our algorithm doesn't have good performance on that. So um, I think these are some of the things that are being discussed in society now, but I think will just become a bigger issue down the road. So it sounds like we need to teach the machines to incorporate morals and ethics into their algorithms as well. Um, So, you know, taking all of that into account, the capacity for this tremendous technology, but knowing that it can have limitations that um, can have significant consequence, what do you envision for the future? Any specific ongoing projects in otolaryngology that you think uh, that are headed somewhere promising? 
So I, I think um, that there's a lot of um, interesting things that are going on um, that have already been published, and I think we're just at the very sort of tip of what's possible. You know, one of the things, I guess this is fairly broad, but I know a couple of different folks are working on the use of voice recognition, uh, not specifically otolaryngology, but in general to potentially perform automated clinical documentation. So I think you have an algorithm sort of listening to your conversation with the patient in the past, in, in the background, and it's just automatically generating your note. Um, so I think that would be something that would be really cool, um, certainly improving our quality of life uh, as physicians. But then more specifically, I think, um, you know, we're, we're doing some um, work here, you know, looking at uh, vestibular schwannomas and trying to predict, uh, you know, which tumors will grow, which tumors won't grow, trying to um, identify, you know, characteristics based on imaging. One of the things that I'm particularly interested in is, is sort of using machine learning and artificial intelligence to understand disease insights in, in chronic rhinosinusitis. We're at this era in biology where we're getting such granular, um, high-dimensional data on inflammatory processes that we have never really been able to get at this scale before. You know, taking that data, taking clinical data inputs and combining them together to investigate and identify nonlinear interactions between the two and really gain a granular understanding of uh, why people get chronic sinusitis and why people do well, don't do well, etc. There's also a growing interest in um, image segmentation and automated imaging um, and sort of identifying characteristics of features of images that may be useful from a clinical standpoint without having um, somebody explicitly, you know, create like a Lund-Mackay score or something like that. Um, I think that's pretty exciting and interesting. Ultimately, the holy grail, I think, would be to have some type of algorithm that is combining all these different elements of, say, pathology slides, imaging, uh, maybe endoscopy images, inflammatory data, you know, maybe even the patient's story, you know, you throw in a little natural language processing and it's able to, you know, really tell based on a discussion if this patient has clinical symptoms and signs of CRS or not and, and putting that all into one algorithm that then could spit out a probability score of, okay, there's a, you know, 90% chance this person does have chronic sinusitis and um, if you do surgery on them, their chance of improving their SNOT-22 is... 75% uh, versus for medicine, it's 25% and and vice versa. So I think that's kind of what the grand goals and schemes uh, that we're thinking about are, but um, there's certainly a way, uh, a little bit of a ways to get there at this point. That would be tremendous if we had help with decision-making and taking some of the guesswork out of how to treat our patients. One question that comes to mind, you know, as we're talking about this is, do you see AI as a technology that would replace statistics, or do you think that this is something different than statistics in a way, and statistical analysis will still play a role in the future? Statistics is always going to be there. I think AI is certainly not a replacement for statistics um, by any means. And with so much focus on AI, I think we often forget that classical statistical methods are very well validated and Often for some of the questions that we really want answers to, particularly questions about causality and, and, and sort of how things relate to each other, um, if a treatment will help or not, 
you know, there's a reason why the randomized controlled trial is the gold standard, and it's just uh, such an elegant tool um, in terms of addressing confounders and using um, random assignment to um, make sure that uh, groups are equal. And, you know, most AI algorithms are really based on observational data, and there's uh, inherent limitations to observational data especially with respect to causality. And so while you can adjust for them and, and there's sort of different methods that you can use to um, analyze that data in a more rigorous way, ultimately, uh, I think that they will exist kind of hand in hand. And uh, I see them very much as complementary tools rather than you know one sort of surpassing the other, at least now. And, and, you know, maybe if you have this brilliant AI statistician that, you know, can rationalize and, and reason beyond our current um, understanding at some point, you know, that will change. But for now, I, I think that they're, they're both just tools. So for our listeners, do you have any suggestions on how to learn more about AI and how this technology can be leveraged to benefit otolaryngology research and patient care? So I, I think... Um, because of the tools that we learn as physicians and um, the tools that AI requires, there's a relatively steep learning curve for an individual practitioner. Um, a lot of the core concepts of AI and machine learning are kind of in the realm of math, probability, statistics, and uh, computer science. And you kind of need a little bit of all of, of those topics to really understand AI on a very deep level. I thought I knew a lot when I was first starting to learn about AI, and uh, it's kind of one of those things where the more you learn about it, the more you understand what you don't know. Um, but I think that's also been a, a really big drive for me to just keep learning and expanding. And, and I've personally just this is going to be super nerdy, but I've been like cracking open old like textbooks from college and like trying to relearn, you know, linear algebra and that kind of stuff, just because I think it's so important to really understand what's happening um, within an AI algorithm. So th I think there's that aspect of it. I think it really helps to have some kind of background in, in coding or some experience with coding. Uh, most of the cutting edge techniques are um, using either Python or R or C++. Um, and for those who um, don't know, those are all fairly commonly used programming languages. And so it's important to be able to implement some of these ideas in code, uh, especially with your data. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody has to go back and learn all of this. Um, I do think it's helpful um, in order to determine where machine learning and AI can be most useful for us as researchers. But I also think a great option, especially um, for those of us in academics who have a lot of collaborators who are uh, you know, PhDs in these fields, is to try to collaborate with those people um, locally in your departments and discuss you know, what your vision is and what problems you're trying to answer and sort of get their inputs and insights into that. For those who, who kind of do want to tackle it head on and, and try to learn things, we live in this amazing era where there's a lot of really great resources on, on YouTube and Coursera and edX and everything to really brush up on um, sort of key uh, machine learning and statistical concepts. And um, for those who want to take it one step further, um, I, I think doing some postgraduate training in that, even doing a PhD in that is also an option for the really serious minded. 
Thank you, Dr. Chaudhry. I think that sums up some of the practical advice that we have regarding this topic for surgeons. Um, At this point, I'll go ahead with a summary of our discussion. Artificial intelligence leverages massive computing power to process information and learn patterns from a data set in an effort to develop an algorithm with predictive capacity for a specific question. While statistical analysis of a large data set can also identify models with predictive values, Statistical modeling requires human input on variable selection, while AI can process data and identify patterns without human input. AI is broadly divided into two subgroups, including natural language processing and machine learning. Machine learning is further divided into supervised, unsupervised, and deep learning. While the theoretical practice of AI holds endless promise, practical applications of the technology require thorough and accurate databases, usually they need to be larger than what we use on a day-to-day basis in otolaryngology. The quality of the data used to develop the learned algorithm is critical. And that leads us into the limitations, which require high-quality data for an accurate uh, algorithm development and human input uh, as a checkpoint. Dr. Chowdhury, thank you so much for being here today. It's been an absolute pleasure interviewing you. Is there anything else you'd like to add? So I think... um the take-home point uh, is that uh, really just to remember that um, AI and machine learning are, are tools. And they're not really truth machines, even though we want them to be. There's a place for them along with more traditional methods of research. Like I mentioned before, you know, at the end of the day, I think a well-designed study um, will give you more insights into a specific question with less patience and less work than even the best ML and AI models. While there is a lot of AI hype these days, um, as there has been in the past, uh, it's still sort of our job as, as clinician scientists to keep focusing on good questions and good data and be critical of our findings, um, especially if they were generated by artificial intelligence. On a side note, I want to say congratulations, Ashley, on almost being done with residency. We're about one week away from graduation. We'll all really miss you here at Vanderbilt, but I know you're going to do amazing things uh, moving forward. Thanks, Dr. Chowdhury. Uh, That's very well put. Um, Well, folks, that wraps up another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.